Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I've got uh, two great individuals. I have Arvind Gupta. He's the founder of IndieBio. Uh, he's a venture advisor there, and he co-leads Mayfield's engineering biology practice. Um, as founder of IndieBio, Arvin uh, redefined the pace and possibilities of what's called early-stage biotech, investing in over 136 companies in five years. Um, his bio goes on and on from there. He's got a fantastic back- background. And I also have uh, Paul Brunson. Uh, he's an American journalist and author who lives in San Francisco. And the two of them have come together uh, to collaborate to co-author a recent book, which is what we're going to talk about today, called uh, Decoding the World. Uh, the picture of it looks like a, I guess, like a, a famous M.C. Escher drawing, like a Mobius strip of a person. But we'll get into the contents from here. So Arvind and Poe, thanks for coming. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, thanks for Richard. Having yeah, thanks, yeah. man. You know, for people that don't know, what's the premise of the book? And then I want to ask you guys how you thought of the idea to write it. Well, we wanted to get science out of its silo. That's like the artistic impulse. What Arvin had created in IndieBio, which is the only venture capital firm with bioengineering bio labs in the firm, where he actually created, spun up 136 different companies in five years. What, what he did was he did amazing things in uh, conventional domains of human health, but he also just did outrageous things in human health as well. And he more than that, took biotech out of just the healthcare sector and applied it to food and materials and energy and really inter- lit the world on fire with uh, understanding how biology as a fundamental technology was programmable and we could sort of reprogram the world with it more than just say the DNA of our bodies. And in the same, in that same spirit, in that same spirit, we wanted to take this domain uh, essentially of genetics and get it out of its silo, get it out into the real world. And so in this book, Arvin's traveling to Iceland, to Argentina. He talks about his time in China. He goes to Poland. He goes to what used to be Eastern Germany to visit where Martin Luther started off the battle with the Catholic Church that led in his thesis, inevitably into the scientific revolution. So it's really an attempt to pull, to teach some things about genetics, but it's more importantly to understand its role in our world and its connection to the rest of their world. And that means even into art and to culture. So the book is full of philosophy. It's full of artistic references. It's full of literary references. It even has a chapter on quantum computing set in an MMA uh, ring with UFC, two professional UFC fighters. Very cool. So Arvin, what's your, your perception of the book? What's it trying to communicate? Yeah, really just that we have a lot to look forward to. And we as a society can use capitalism and, and use the tools that we have to make a better future. 
it's easy to lose sight of that these days. It's easy to feel like the future is already written. And I think, you know, just even the small act of saying, hey, uh, could you use biology actually to rewrite the code of life uh, in these microorganisms in order to make food more sustainable? And, you know, that alone created a huge wave, as Poe was just mentioning, a huge wave of optimism that we could do something about climate change that seems to be unstoppable. But as we say in the book, nothing is inevitable. And so what, you know, we wrote the book about, well, we wrote the book as writers write, and we are both writers, and we want to make sure that people understand that they can do something, and uh, there are things being done already to solve the world's biggest problems with biology. So what's been the feedback from uh, early readers? Uh, well, you know, I may be biased. Like, I think the been, cover of the book says it, which is phenomenal. the yeah. M.C. Escher Mobius strip is really a, it, it suggests your mind expanding or your mind being blown. And that has been the response from virtually every single reader where they knew we had done some amazing stuff at IndieBio, but then to see it in this form where it's integrated with culture and art and it's deeply personal and it has this domain of Arvin and I's buddy story that powers it, where it starts with me coming to IndieBio and ends two years later with Arvin leaving IndieBio. Just nobody expected that. And so it's sort of uh, blowing their minds. Uh, it's what, one of the, I guess another, one of the most I thought eloquent things I would say was that it triggered a revolution in the mind uh, of all these readers. Well, maybe maybe one of the it's an extension of what Arvin's been doing in Indie Bio. Maybe this will entice other people to start their own initiatives because of the content of the book. That seems like a, a pretty worthy goal if that was one of it. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and that's really what we're seeing as well. So, and people can take that wherever they want. They don't necessarily just start their endeavors and come to us. Maybe they, maybe they join others' endeavors or um, maybe they sleep better at night. I think all of those are valid outcomes, uh, but just understanding the world around you and being able to grasp it as, this, as the pace of change increases is something that the book is attempting to help the, the reader come to grips with. Well, did you guys have extra material? Any really cool anecdotes or stories that didn't make it into the book um, that you want to talk about that would entice readers to read it? Hmm. Well, we're free to talk about stuff that's in the book, too. The stuff that's not in the book is where we, we I mean, the whole book was an experiment. We, we sold it, but we didn't know if we could write it. And we had a general plan, but we you know, continuously abandoned that as we went with what was working. And so there were things like, and we, we actually have text messages back and forth around, because it's a three book trilogy around what's going to be in book two, because we couldn't figure out how to put it into book one. So like there's a chapter on plants that we never got in. So we're going to be doing that in book two, um, et cetera. Well, let's, let's pick a story from the book then that, uh, you think would be particularly enticing for people to read it? Especially for your audience. Uh, we could talk, you pick. We could talk about cancer. We could talk about longevity uh, to make this interesting. We Quantum could talk. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's do that. We'll give a few tidbits. So pick it. Let's, let's do one cancer one and right. we'll do uh, one quantum computing one. And then we'll go from there. Because a, a question I hadn't asked you, which overlays all this is, 
you know, everyone says they want to improve people's lives. Well, what, what does that mean? Like, what, before we get into the stories, what do you consider a person's life to be improved? You know, what does that mean to them? And I know it depends on the person, but what are a couple examples in your mind when you say that? What are you trying to improve and for whom? So I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Poe has two children as well uh, that are older. And, you know, it, it, for me, it's very freaking clear, right? It's it's for them and all the people around us. It's, uh, it's easy for older generation, I'm a Gen X, you know, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, climate change will happen one day, you know, kind of whatever, who cares? It's easy to think all of these things happen to other people. But when you look at what matters for me, it's giving or, or leaving the planet and leaving society in a place that's better for all of our children. And, uh, and that's really, for me, what it was, what it was about. So helping people, right? Like is across all those dimensions, like one of my most personal chapter is about, you know, and, and I, I wanted to write it because there's a lot of people out there that go through a lot of pain and then they don't know how to process that. And so they, they, they inflict that pain on others. And so what is, you know, it's not just curing cancer, right? That's an easy, it's an easy way to, to frame this. Um, helping people often means helping them relate to themselves or relate to their own pain um, or have hope. I know for me in my life, which was not as linear as most people's or many people's, I should say, hope got me through a lot, right? It allowed me to keep a North Star. And I think like just being able to offer that is on one level helping people, right? And then there's all other direct ways, which is sequestering enough carbon in the atmosphere or from the atmosphere. Uh, so that way uh, our children and their children actually have a planet they can live on um, in the middle latitudes. That simple or curing cancer or treating a disease that our, our parents have. So that's my guiding light. And uh, hopefully that is somewhat defined enough. Yeah, I would add that making this world a better world for our children is what we do at IndieBio. The book is doesn't do that in and of itself. What the book does is for readers who often have tremendous anxiety around the sort of mega collisions of our future, around our climate, around our healthcare system, the war on truth, the rise of China, genetic revolution, scaring people. And so the role of the book is to give them much more nimbleness and confidence and alleviate that fear and make them sort of excited to play their part in embracing an alternative view of that future that's far less dystopian. Yeah, I can tell you guys that, you know, writers like you was actually what got me into the podcast because uh, I was getting emails from Peter Diamandis. And he's done Abundance and all these other books that are, again, positive and about the future. And I just was attracted towards that. And that's what got me to do the podcast in the first place. So the stuff you guys do works, at least it did for me. And uh, it's inspiring. That's awesome, Richard. And that's exactly what we're talking about, right? And then you inspire others. And, it, and you know, the ripple continues. All right. So let's get into some of the um, the particular stories that, you know, start with um, cancer. Like what's what's ahead in the future for cancer in your eyes? Yeah. So, you know, the cancer chapter, I mean, I think all of these, you know, just to, for the readers who haven't read the book yet or, or seen the book, each chapter is set up um, with a headline and a headline taken real from, from the news, right? Like an actual headline on the internet. And um, 
And it's a typical type of headline, these, which is these days designed to make you click. And then it unpacks that headline to make it more understandable and tell you kind of the truth, right? And they're often told in real life experience. And so for that chapter, um, the headline is something about, oh yeah, drinking too much orange juice can cause cancer, right? Um, whoa, I should, what, what do you mean? <laughs> When did orange juice become, you know, carcinogenic? And, uh, and so I tell that story that I wrote that particular chapter through the lens of um, my mother uh, having cancer and learning about my mother's cancer and um, explaining what was happening to me and my family at the same time as it was as explaining what was happening inside her cells and what mutations were being driven. And when those mutations got turned on randomly, what that made the cell do. And when that cell starts dividing very rapidly, how does it make space in the body? And as it makes space, how does it continue to create its own blood vessel supply and things like this? And and so, and talk about then how, how do you deal with it? What, do you, what are the ways, you know, what was the treatment options? It's not a textbook on cancer. It's not a list of like WebMD of like, here's the things you can do to treat cancer. It's an intimate understanding of the disease through a real world experience, my own. And so I think, you know, people that have read that chapter uh, have told me, right? Like, especially with others in their family that have cancer and otherwise, um, I never understood it this way, right? Um, I never understood, like you, everyone wants to blame something, right? Oh, they used to smoke. They, uh, and if like they were just healthy, you know, it's hard to accept the randomness of a mutation, but in the end, that's what cancer is. And as Poe likes to say, it's a failure to fix that mutation. Every single second in our body, one cell is turning cancerous and then the body fixes that mutation and makes it uncancerous. At some point that doesn't get fixed and you have the beginnings of, of a tumor. So I think, you know, that's, that's what that chapter is about. And, you know, you asked specifically about what are ways we're going to treat it. I didn't really talk about that so much in the chapter, um, uh, other than the ways we know, which is chemotherapy and, you know, physical um, surgical resection, you know, with, along with some immuno-oncology drugs, but um, on the horizon of cancer, knowing that as we, as I just said, that cancer is caused by mutations. You can never cure can like you cannot uh, ever prevent cancer. Cancer is a part of life. We can see what you did do. You provided an on ramp from someone knowing nothing about it, and they're just going to the doctor and saying, "We need to do this and that." Towards understanding what's going on, so at least they feel like they may have more control of the situation because they understand part of what's going on. So you see what is comforting to people. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's absolutely right. And it's, you know, having been in those doctor's offices and having the benefit of being an expert in the field, I could only imagine how bewildering it is when you don't actually know anything about cancer biology or biology in general. As an expert, it is already, it's still bewildering. <laughs> like, um, and, uh, and so you just feel lost and it's already a fearful moment. So Hopefully that, that chapter, like you said, helps people have a, a little bit more control in a situation that's literally uncontrolled for them. And, um, and so once you understand what's happening, now you could understand actually what the treatments are and why those treatments are. And so 
Um, you know, why do you lose your hair when you take chemotherapy? You know, what can turn your immune system back on and have it find the cancer cells, right? Uh, where they're normally being hidden by the immune system. So these are some of the things that we're exploring in the cutting edge of science right now in cancer therapies. So Paul, what about yourself? What's the story that's... Well, let me, let me go off are. of that. So it's going to be a little tricky because of the cancer. What I've already said about cancer. One of Arvind's main points there is that every time a cell divides, every day you live longer, your cells are dividing. As cells divide and the genome replicates, it has errors, which our body fixes, but it gets wor worse and worse and worse over time at fixing those errors. In the sense that you didn't give yourself cancer. I think one of the chapters that speaks to the overall idea of the book is a chapter about the Jason Bourne movies. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I wrote this when I was in New Orleans, hanging out with my son, and it covers the history of philosophy in about a page, and it explains how ever since the early findings of Darwin, human thinking about the genome has been that genes are deterministic, that genes control our fate, that genes determine our future, and in many chapters, it is referencing this desire to know thyself, to know your identity, to know who you are. And one of the ways you probe that philosophically is by doing genetic testing. And most commonly, 23andMe type tests, where you're trying to understand who am I? And part of it is what clues are in my genome that explain me? And on the health side, what might predict my health? Now, what we explain in this chapter about Jason Bourne movies, because if you think about Jason Bourne for a second and all those movies, he seems to be an incredible man of action, but he's always haunted by this idea that he's actually been programmed. He's been programmed by others, been programmed by others at the CIA or the Treadstone program, and that everything that he does, which seems amazing and cool and he's in control of, is actually like a deep brain reaction to the moment. And I think that speaks very much to the human condition, which would feel somewhat like we're being controlled by things. Genome of all of them for 150 years, not just science, but all of philosophy has been reacting to the idea that the genome is on, building on the idea that genome is deterministic, is controlling our fate. It's extremely important for every listener to understand that for a very small percentage of us, like 1% of us, we have uh, somewhere on our genome something that is deterministic. And, and, I have, and I have people in my family that like this. But for the almost all of us, our genes are much more if-then systems that respond to the environment. Your genes are designed to say, oh, well... If you're at really high altitude, we're going to shift over and start making this. If you're at low altitude, we're going to make that. In this way, the environment is the ultimate master regulator of our genes. And the whole concept that nature and nurture are two separate opposing things is wrong. They're, in fact, the same thing. That the nurturing environment around us, our environment, is coded into our nature. And the and we go through this at great length, explaining all these dimensions of genetics that kind of explain it. But what does this do, not just at a genetic level, what does this do to philosophy? What it does to philosophy is it says, you guys have been 
banging up against Darwin, trying to say, oh, no, no, we're all hiddenly, we all have these hidden controls. We all have these subliminal factors. The last 150 years of philosophy is actually wrong because genetics was never deterministic. And everybody who's used genetic determinism in a philosophical argument has been fundamentally wrong. And what it ends up doing is it's a chapter using Jason Bourne that is a treatise on free will. The eternal question of all philosophy is, do we have free will? For thousands of years, it was more about, does God control us or do we control ourselves? And lately, it's been, do genes control us or do we control ourselves? And the answer is, our lives are up to us. You're not controlled by your genes. And you have the power to determine uh, not everything that goes on in your life, but certainly at the very least what life means. And that's up to us. Yeah, that's a more uplifting statement than to say, right, you're pre-programmed, too bad, that's it. You got the, the short stick in life. Yeah. yeah I think um, that's, that's a theme. I mean, that's a theme that we believe in, right? And it goes straight to the core of how we work, how we live, uh, and how we invest. We invest in scientists with ideas that most investors would, uh, that would send most investors uh, running away. Like, um, and we just believe in, in people. We believe in people that have the ability to using hard work and an insight build something that is, is remarkable. So we talked about cancer. We talked about free will. I mean, very big ideas. Let's, let's do one more, you know, what's one more really big idea that speaks to either of you about the book that you, you're so happy you communicated Hmm, there's so many. There's 33 of them. <laughs> like all of them, all of them made the book because they're big ideas. You know, I think one of the other, like in terms of just how big the ideas are, right? It goes back to what do you think, Poe Wittenberg? What What do you think? Let's, let's... I feel like we've been doing philosophy. Well, we could do. Uh, we'll let Richard pick. We do quantum, or we could do Bitcoin, or we could do robots. <laughs> That's good. I, quantum, I like... Bitcoin, or robots. No, no biology in any of these chapters. Uh, but it's important okay. to understand that our perspective on these different things. So, R R Richard, you get to pick. Open the robots, door. Robots, <laughs> Bitcoin, well, I, yeah. or quantum <laughs> computing. I spend quite a lot of time in the uh, the blockchain world, which uh, I, I, I could use some good news there because that for, you know seems to have uh, held great promise, and that promise seems to have gone nowhere in the past few years, at least in my estimation. And then uh, I don't know; it, it seems like a very dystopian future where blockchain is co-opted by uh, you know for surveillance and negative things. I'd like to like it to be used for positive things. So, your thoughts there would be good. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Okay, so it's not a chapter about blockchain, for what it's worth. It is a chapter about Bitcoin. And okay. what we did was, because I'll just say, like, Arvin and I are like, what the hell is this Bitcoin? <laughs> what is the video? And don't get me wrong, our venture fund, not out of IndieBio, out of a program in China, launched in Hong Kong uh, the world's most insane trading platform for Bitcoin called BitMEX. So like it, it, we're doing this at our firm, but we still didn't quite, what we were really interested in was not people who trade Bitcoin a lot. We were really interested in the people who hold really big positions and are holding it for the really long term. And they're not concerned about Bitcoin going up to 20,000, back down to 7,000, now back up to 15,000. They're in it because they have this belief that Bitcoin could be worth 
10 or 100 times more than that. And we wanted to understand that. And so we, get, we provided confidentiality to a good number of whales and really began to understand their thinking. And we began to see a different side of Bitcoin, which was that it was essentially people were holding it as a hedge, as a bet against all sovereign governments in the world. As a, as a, most people have the currency in U.S. dollars, and it's, it's actually a bet against the U.S. governments. And it was sure moralistically an objection to the printing of money, as done was done insanely this year by many governments to try to get us through the pandemic. Yeah, why would why would it be a, a bet against the U.S. government if I live in China? Why isn't it a bet against the U.S. or I mean, sorry, the Chinese renminbi? Okay, well, no, it, it's really a bet against all sovereign monetary policies, where we get into the fact that it's a bet against the U.S. government is in the venture industry. In these interviews, we learned that many venture funds were actually taking money meant for investing in startups and sinking it into Bitcoin instead, and that they were doing that to offset their exposure to the U.S. dollar, where specifically they had a lot of money uh, all of their holdings are in U.S. dollars, and that provides a certain amount of inherent risk if you've, you've got, whether it's a $1 billion or $10 billion, but you've got it all in U.S. dollars. And motivated by not just this sort of element of financial off-weighting, but as much by this sort of uh, moral sense of, like puritanical sense of like condemning loose monetary policy. And that, and that they were essentially, almost all of them were okay with the idea that Bitcoin would get regulated by the US government and shut down. And that they all thought of that as actually its most likely scenario down the road. But it des- they described that the one, the criminal money was moving out of Bitcoin, moving into other coins. Two, even like the Yale endowment was now into Bitcoin. And so there was a race to get more and more like really notable people into Bitcoin before the U.S. government wanted to shut it down so that it essentially became too big to fail, like too big to for the U.S. government to come in and say, stop this Bitcoin stuff. It's allowing people to do transactions where you don't know your customer. And it seems to have sort of reached that point. And throughout the entire chapter, Arvin and I are wondering whether to put some money in Bitcoin. Um, I, I never did. Arvin, did you? No, I'm yeah. a no-coiner. Yeah, I'm, I'm a no-coiner. I mean, it, we were just very frustrated, though, that, you know, these venture funds, the startups need this money. They're off to do good for the world. And, and that the money was instead going to Bitcoin was frustrating for us. That's right. You know, one big obstacle seems to be that can't pay your taxes at least in the U.S. with Bitcoin, that seems to be a big stumbling block to uh, its widespread adoption. I mean, what is the path forward for it? Is there a path forward? Well, the most likely scenario still is that it all gets wiped away by regulators. That's the belief of the people who hold the biggest positions of Bitcoin, but that they're okay with that. But what they really wanted to do is essentially replace gold. And there are many, many good arguments for why it should replace gold as the sort of singular best alternative to fiat-based investments. And once right. it replaces gold, it the price of Bitcoin could go to 330000 So, yeah, I mean, well, our U.S. currency used to be backed by gold. 
unfortunately it's not now but um so do you think that uh, various governments are going to create their own coins you know and try to uh, have a centralized ledger for each country similar to, to bitcoin or is that kind of beyond the scope of your thoughts for this book that's a natural um extension right of where this is going let's say the experiment works where you know the mass adoption of a of a cryptocurrency I mean, Venezuela is already doing, or it's, I think it's Venezuela, um, Latin American company, uh, country uh, has already implemented a, a national coin. You know, the, the question is, is really why, right? And so it, a nation would never, in my mind, go to a, a currency they couldn't control, right? Like <laughs> that, would be, that would be a, uh, a ridiculous way of losing control of your own economy. And so any implementation of a cryptocurrency would eliminate by a by a country would eliminate the core value proposition it was that that it was built for in the first place which is the fact that it will never you could never inflate it right um that it there's a limited and finite supply and everyone knows what that is so i'm going to make a different argument Please. which is that i believe instead the us dollar will replace bitcoin not the bitcoin replace the us dollar and my argument is that the demand for dollars is global, and I have scant evidence for this, but my data points are that El Salvador uses the U.S. dollar as its official currency. Ecuador uses the U.S. dollar as its official currency now. Zimbabwe uses the U.S. dollar as its official currency. And there are other smaller areas that you wouldn't be so surprised in Micronesia and Samoa as well are using the U.S. dollar as official currency. I believe that people are already treating the U.S. dollar as their official currency. And you see that any of us has seen that when we travel around the world. And so I look at it the other way, which is that there is essentially in the same way we're fighting for global power between, say, U.S. and China, um, we are fighting for their currencies to essentially become the currency of these other countries. And that's where I actually think it's going to go. And it doesn't mean that Bitcoin goes away. I just think that that's sort of uh, the vision of the future that most people aren't talking about. Yeah, I could see that, you know, the idea of a cryptocurrency is is seductive, um, you know, open ledger, unhackable, uh, had a lot of good qualities, but you know, for instance, Bitcoin, in order for it to be used as money, it would have to be stable because people can't really depend to be paid in Bitcoin and then it fluctuates all over the place. Then their ability to buy things and function would be uh, very difficult if the value jumps all over. So it seems like speculation kind of has to be somewhat separated or isolated from the, the currency itself. Otherwise, how do you use it? You know, again, how is it stable and, and usable by people as a store of real value? Yeah, I think what, you know, and it goes back to what Poe's saying, right? Like right now, I don't think anyone's expecting it to be a currency. I think right now everyone's expecting it to be a hedge against a currency. And then, you know, that if it successfully becomes a hedge against a currency and becomes, you know, the de facto hedge, then it becomes digital gold, which is worth $330,000 per Bitcoin. You know, uh, once it becomes a digital hedge, again, there's a bunch of different reasons that we talked about why, the next step of actually becoming currency has issues, but let's just say it solves all of those things. Yeah, then then you know um, the the demand for that finite supply goes way up, and then you know several orders of magnitude probably higher in price. 
but that's a future that I think is a little too far to to um, really predict. So in the context of your book, how is Bitcoin going to help people's help people improve their lives? <laughs> so, you know, the, how it's an experiment. And I think like that's one of the reasons we talked about it. Right. It's an it's an experiment to free an individual from government control over their finances, over their the, the, the value of their finances. In other words, um, the way the government's uh, printing money right now in the United States will lead to, at some point, a deflationary effect on all currency, on all dollars, right? Which means everyone gets a little bit poorer. If you're the person in charge, that's a better way to go <laughs> because everyone gets poorer t- together, right? You don't have to choose one, one group or another. Uh, you just keep printing until, until there's a devaluation. So Bitcoin helps people try to escape that path, right? It give, you didn't have a path out unless you were some you know, financier and you can buy Japanese yen. Well, that's a bad, <laughs> another bad currency buy, but you know, some other safe, safe haven currency against the dollar. Um, this provides an alternative. So whether or not you believe it, like there it's an exper- it was an experiment created in that vein, which is why it's so interesting. And the real diehard believers in Bitcoin are not actually speculators. They're, they're, uh, they're hodlers. Yeah. They're, they're hodlers. Why? Because they, they want to see the experiment work. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and for someone in a country whose currency is being devalued, wherever that may be, it may be a good refuge. So it makes sense. Yeah, and then, sure, some, there are some, bro, you know, there, there are people out there that are trying to make a buck, whatever. <laughs> That's not what it was built for. Yeah, there always will be. But yeah. Well, very good. Poe and Arvind, um, where can people get Decoding the World? Is it on audiobook and you know, Kindle and Amazon. I mean, where can they go? Absolutely. On Amazon, you can actually just go read the first few chapters. Uh, I, I promise you'll be hooked. Absolutely. Okay. And then, yeah. And then, is there any bonus material for buyers of the book? You know, is there any like secret surprise inside where they, they get more things or is it all going to be in the trilogy that's coming is where the new stuff's going to be coming from? It's all in the trilogy. That's right. More, more to come. Yeah, go to Amazon and and I exactly what Poe said. Go read the first chapter and uh, you'll see what's what you're in store for. Okay, excellent. And how do people find out more about both of you? Because reading the book, I'm sure, will make them very curious about what you guys are doing. Uh, use the internet. <laughs> you can you can find me on Instagram. You know, all the ground. Well, Arvind is a is a partner at Mayfield which is one of Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road's most premier. It's arguably the Harvard, Yale, Stanford, or University of Chicago or Cal of Sand Hill Road. You can take your pick. I'm not going to try to decide which one that is, but it is down the block from Stanford. So that's probably a good hint. <laughs> it was quite, and I'm still here at Indy Bio, <laughs> South of Market neighborhood, toiling away in obscurity, but, uh, yeah, we're would love for people to come to IndieBio's website and see all of the amazing companies that we've launched in the last five years. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for coming, and thanks for being a you know a light of hope in the world with your book and all your work. So I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you, Richard. Thank you, Richard, for having us. And uh, yeah, great speaking. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.